brothers and sisters, let's turn to 2 Kings chapter 2. So 2 Kings chapter 22, reading from verses 1 to 20. Uh, For those of us who are more tech savvy, uh, you can pull out your mobile devices. and, And if not, we have the text up on the screen. Now, the book of Kings traces the history of God's people from the beginning of Solomon's reign until the sad demise and destruction, the exile of the nation of Judah. And as we trace this story, we see many, many, many bad kings and only a few good kings. Well, today we are going to see perhaps one of the greatest good kings, King Josiah, who would initiate a reform and a revival to bring the nation back to God through the word of God. So let's read together from 2 Kings, chapter 22, verses 1 to 20. Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jedidah, the daughter of Adiah of Boscath. And he did that which was right in the eyes of the Lord, and walked in all the ways of David his father. And he did not turn aside to the right or to the left. In the eighteenth year of King Josiah, the king sent Shaphan, the son of Asaliah, son of Meshalam, the secretary, to the house of the Lord, saying, Go up to Hilkiah, the high priest, that he may count the money that has been brought into the house of the Lord, which the keepers of the threshold have collected from the people, and let it be given into the hand of the workmen who have the oversight of the house of the Lord, and let them give it to the workmen who are at the house of the Lord, repairing the house, that is, to the carpenters, and to the builders, and to the masons, and let them use it for buying timber and quarried stone to repair the house." But no accounting shall be asked from them for the money that is delivered into their hand, for they deal honestly. And Hilkiah, the high priest, said to Shaphan, the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan, and he read it. And Shaphan, the secretary, came to the king and reported to the king, Your servants have emptied out the money that was found in the house of the Lord. House, and have delivered it into the hand of the workmen who have the oversight of the house of the Lord. Then Shaphan the secretary told the king, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book, and Shaphan read it before the king. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes, and the king commanded Hilkiah the priest and Ahikam the son of Shaphan and Akbor the son of Micaiah, and Shaphan the secretary, and Isaiah the king's servant, saying, Go, inquire of the Lord for me, and for the people, and for all Judah, concerning the words of this book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us, because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book, to do according to all that is written concerning us. So, Hilkiah the priest, and Ahikam, and Akbor, and Shaphan, and Asiah went to Huldah the prophetess, the wife of Shalom, the son of Tikvah, son of Hahas, keeper of the wardrobe. 
Now she lived in Jerusalem in the second quarter, and they talked with her. And she said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Tell the man who sent you to me, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will bring disaster upon this place and upon its inhabitants all the words of the book that the king of Judah has read, because they have forsaken me and have made offerings to other gods that they might provoke me to anger with all the work of their hands. Therefore, my wrath will be kindled against this place and it will not be quenched. But to the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord, thus shall you say to him, thus says the Lord of God, of the God of Israel, regarding the words that you have heard, because your heart was penitent and you humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard how I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants, that they should become a desolation and a curse, and you have torn your clothes and wept before me, I also have heard you, declares the Lord. Therefore, behold, I will gather you to your fathers, and ye shall be gathered to your grave in peace, and your eyes shall not see the disaster that I will bring upon this place. And they brought back the word to the king, the word of the Lord. Michelle's body lay there by the icy creek, she was very cold and blue. She had no pulse and was not breathing. Her pupils were fixed, widely dilated, as though she had suffered brain damage or as the eyes of someone who had died. She was not breathing. A monitor detected no heartbeat. She lay there, cold still lifeless. The two-and-a-half-year-old girl had fallen and been submerged in an icy creek for 62 minutes before rescuers got to her and saved her. Nevertheless, rescuers continued to try to save her. They began cardiopulmonary resuscitation, pressing, pressing against her lungs and heart to bring life into her body, forcing air into her lungs and blood throughout her body. They continued it once the helicopter arrived and as they went to the hospital, the emergency department, but still no sign of improvement, still lifeless. In the emergency room, one doctor, Dr. Bolt, he got his technical team to set up a specific machine called the bypass machine. They set up this machine with the anticipation of using it to try to revive this young girl. They connected her to it and they started to inject warmed fluids into Michelle's vein and stomach. They squeezed warm air through the machine into her lungs in the anticipation and hope that she might be revived and restored. But three hours after she had fallen into that creek and been submerged, still she was lifeless. As the other doctors and staff saw Dr. Bolt seeking to save this young lady. They thought he was crazy. Many thought to themselves, there is no hope in reviving her. There is no chance that she can be saved. And Dr. Bolt and his team debated within themselves how hard they should push 
to save her life. She was lifeless, still, unmoving, until finally, after a few hours, Michelle's body was resuscitated. The biopass machine had finally worked to revive her from the brink. The New York Times, when they reported this story, they had this headline, Ingenuity and a Miraculous Revival. Similarly, if God's church is to experience a revival, if God's church is to be restored and to be revived, she must prioritize God's word in all that she does. Because God's word brings life. But sadly, so many churches today neglect God's word. So many churches today do not pick up God's word, do not have God's word at the center of what they do. But we can overcome this indifference and this challenge by opening God's word, reading it, and making it the foundation of all that we do as his church. Because God's word brings life, we must not neglect it in the life of our church. As we have seen, Josiah became king at a very young age, at eight years old. And as he entered into this nation and kingdom, the nation and kingdom were so far from God. And it would have been easy for Josiah also to continue a life far from God. But God placed it in his heart to search after him, to seek after him, and to restore the nation. The previous kings of Judah, his father and grandfather, had had terrible proclamations. We read it in the scriptures that both of them received this testimony, that they did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And under their leadership, the nation which should have been distinct, the nation which should have been separate, the nation which should have been focused on God's word and God's truth and God's glory had instead turned to idols. They had removed themselves far from God as they had disobeyed him and neglected his word. But at the age of 26, we see that Josiah has an interest to restore God's place in Israel. And he receives a glowing testimony, as we have seen in verse 2 there. And he did that which was right in the eyes of the Lord and walked in all the ways of David his father, and he did not turn aside to the right or to the left. And it was in his heart to restore this neglected temple, this temple which had been in disrepair, this temple which had not been a focus of God's people because they had neglected God's word, God's temple had also been neglected. So how must the church today respond to the widespread neglect of the word of God. We must recommit ourselves to active involvement in a Bible-believing local church. Look with me, please, to verses 3 to 7. And as we read this section, and as we have read it together, one thing comes to us immediately. The number of times that the house of God 
it's mentioned in these verses, if you had followed through and counted the occasions and the number of times that expression comes up, you would have counted at least six times that this expression, the house of God or the house, comes up in this passage. And so the Holy Spirit is seeking to impress and emphasize to our hearts the significance and importance and centrality of God's house, the importance of God's house for the word of God and for the life of the believer in Christ. It just cannot be overemphasized. It's clear in this text that God is revealing his desire for his people to have a commitment to the temple, the house of God, his local church. But we notice that the temple had fallen into disrepair. And so Josiah, he, as it were, sets up a number of components to bring and restore this church to what it should be. And as we consider this, uh, we, we notice a few things. As we think about God's church being central, he, as we look at verse 4, speaks to Hilkiah, Go up to Hilkiah the high priest, that he may count the money that has been brought into the house of the Lord, which the keepers of the threshold have collected from the people. And so we see from this verse that in order for the house of God to be restored, it needed a giving people, the money from the people. I'm so thankful to God and his grace of how he has provided for ECC for the many years that we have been in this place. And thankful to you, God's people, as you have continued to give, even in tough times, even in challenging times, especially in this time of the pandemic. But as we continue to live in the backdrop of an uncertain economy, where jobs have been ravaged because of COVID, where many of us have lost our jobs and are uncertain of a future, how do we deal with, with this challenge? It can be very difficult for even the most faithful to give to the church cheerfully, joyously, readily, freely. In fact, for many of us, it can be scary. Our money can only go so far. We have to think about job security, bills, savings. If we have children, school fees, their future, our future, putting money away for a rainy day, retirement, and such other things. And it can be stressful, and it can be tense, and it can be difficult at times. And we say to ourselves, and I'm supposed to give to the church also? Well, if that's your thought process, then perhaps we are thinking about the scriptural act of giving wrongly. You see, God does not want us to be stressed in our giving. God is not forcing us to give. God wants us to give freely and cheerfully. Look at what 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6 and 7 says. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. The bottom line is this, is that God is not forcing us to give, but God wants us to enjoy 
giving. He wants us to give for his church, for the furtherance of the gospel from our hearts. What do you think it means to give from your hearts? It means that we give in love, lovingly. Now, God loved giving, didn't he? He loved giving so much that he gave his only begotten son, our Lord Jesus Christ. He did not spare him, but he gave him up freely for us all. John 3, uh, 16 reads that God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Jesus is the best gift that we have ever received. And it's in light of this truth that we, God's people, give. It's an act of worship. It's an opportunity for us to put our faith into practice. But we don't just give monetary, we give of our time, of our labor to God's church as we acknowledge what he has given to us. And so God, he transforms us from takers to givers so that we might live lives which are in constant giving to him, sacrificially to him and to his purposes. And as we continue to consider this section, we also notice that aside from a giving people, the work to restore God's house so that it could be focused on God's word required godly oversight. Look at verse 5a. And let it be given into the hand of the workmen who have the oversight of the house of the Lord. And also, verse 9, your servants have emptied out the money that was found in the house of, and have delivered it into the hand of the workmen who have the oversight of the house of the Lord. The management of God's house, the overseeing of God's house and resources requires oversight. That's the elders. That's the men that God has appointed to oversee the house of God, the local church, to shepherd the people of God. Men that God has called and, and separated for this particular role of managing, of stewarding those resources. And that is why one of the qualifications of an elder is not to be a lover of money, but rather he should be a giver of money and of his time. And another qualification of an elder is that he must manage his own household well. How could a man who cannot manage his own household well be called to manage and oversee the household of God in the uh, road and, and direction of proclaiming the gospel? And so we see that the restoration of God's house needed godly oversight. And I am so thankful for the men of God um, that God has raised up to oversee and to be elders here at ECC. These are men who love the Lord, who love God's word, who love you, God's people, and who are seeking to be good stewards of God's resources, seeking to direct them in the right things to the furtherance of the gospel, and so the proclamation of his holy word. And as such, we should trust these men, as we see in verse 7, for they deal honestly. But further to this, we notice again in verse 5b that we need not only godly oversight, but gifted workers in the house of God 
in order to bring God's word in and make it central for his purposes and glory. Listen to what he says there. And let them give it to the workmen who are at the house of the Lord, repairing the house. The house of God requires workmen to labor in the house of God. It requires workmen who are gifted in specific tasks, in specific areas to restore the house of God. And these workmen must be recompensed, right? We see that, that Josiah expects these men who have committed their lives full-time to labor in God's house, he expects them to be recompensed a fair wage. And this, of course, is not just an Old Testament truth. It's a New Testament truth also. It's emphasized in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 17 to 18, where we read Paul's words concerning the elders. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muscle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Paul is here making an apostolic application to the rights of staff pastors, staff elders to be supported financially as ministers of the gospel. He's wanting the people to know that they should not be taken for granted or being taken advantage of, but rather they should be adequately recompensed for their gospel labors. And so these verses in 1 Timothy are showing us that compensation to our staff is not kindness, but it's a right. As a congregation, we should be um, happy and joyful to provide adequate compensation for those who labor full-time in the things of the Lord. But we need other workmen too. We need the members of God's house, you, to be involved in God's work in the local church. We need you, God's people, to focus on God's things and put time into God's things and labor in his kingdom for the furtherance of the gospel. And so such an account has reminded us that restoring God's house, it requires God's people to give generously. It requires godly oversight to ensure that God's house is focused on the right things. And it requires gifted workers, workers who labor in the things of God, who dedicate time to the furtherance of the gospel. Ravaged by a toxic cocktail of environmental pollution and gross governmental neglect, bureaucratic apathy, India's most iconic monument, the Taj Mahal, should be demolished. An irate Supreme Court suggested. This sent shockwaves throughout that nation of 1.3 billion people. But what led to this court's uncharacteristically harsh outburst was frustration at the central state and the authorities because they had failed to preserve and protect this iconic monument, this iconic building, one of the masterpieces of the world. And so upbraiding the authorities 
the judges remarked that the mausoleum is a hopeless course and they actually threatened to shut it down, adding that they would be better without it, adding that they either demolish it or restore it. And it's easy for us when faced with such a choice of demolishing or restoring to go for the easy route. It's hard to be involved in the things of God, to labor in, in God's place and to bring something that was broken and to restore it. But when we are faced with such a challenge, we should stand up and take up that challenge and focus on God's things so that he might be restored to his rightful place in his church. That means for us at ECC that we must be wise in how we spend our reserves, for how we direct the resources that God has given us, that we must ensure that we are focusing on the right things. And that means that for us as members of ECC, we must not neglect God's house, but we must persevere, we must be attentive, and we must attend. I know the pandemic has been tough, and it's been very easy in the pandemic with the online services and limited capacity to neglect coming to God's house, to neglect prioritizing God's house and God's people. But we must not do that. We must focus on coming and engaging in God's house with God's people, that we might encourage one another, that we might bring his house back to where it should be, into a revival where the place in which God has placed us knows that this is the house where the gospel of God is proclaimed and the people of God come and communicate with one, one another in the gospel. And so we have the house of God being restored by the people of God for the glory of God. And it's during this time uh, that uh, an interesting discovery is made. The book of the law is found. That book which had been neglected, which had been discarded, which had been set aside and lost, causing all their challenges and issues of idolatry and, and worshipping other gods and, and the temple being left dilapidated and in disrepair. That word of the law, which is a covenant between the people and their God, was found. And so, how must the church today respond to the widespread neglect of the word of God? We must read the Bible regularly and obey what we read. Look at verse 8. And Hilkiah the high priest said to Shaphan the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan and he read it. So we see that the book of the law was found and it was read. But I don't know about you, it's quite shocking, isn't it? That the people of God had actually lost the word of God. That's rather sad. The people that should have been characterized as people of the book had been living lives without the book. How were they to know God's mind? How are they to know God's will? How are they to know God's purposes for them without the book? Now, some have said that this book could have been the five books of Moses, the Pentateuch, or perhaps it was just the book of Deuteronomy. 
In either case, this book represented God's written record of his gracious covenant with them. God's truth. It should have been something that should have been protected and preserved, but the nation had failed to protect it. They had lost the word of the Lord. Have we lost the word of the Lord? Is the word of the Lord central in our lives, in all that we do? Is the word of the Lord central in the life of ECC? Now, this account should really serve as a great warning to us. In this 21st century in which we live, we believe that there are many other dangers to us as a church. There is secularization and other such things which we may perhaps feel are the greatest dangers seeking to attack God's church and to diminish it and to break it down. But as we consider these verses, we actually find that the greatest danger that we face as a church is apathy to the word of God. It's apathy to the word of God. And that's a really sobering thought, isn't it? That the greatest danger facing us as God's church is not outside, but it's within us. And it has to do with his word from which he speaks to us. Unequivocally, as we consider this, we have to ask the question, whose responsibility then is it to protect and preserve God's word in God's church? Whose responsibility is it to avoid the possibility of losing God's word in his church? Well, primarily, that falls upon the shoulders of the elders, the, the pastors, that responsibility to protect and serve and proclaim it primarily falls upon pastors and elders. And so as pastors and elders, we must examine ourselves and ask ourselves the question, have I lost the word of, the, of God in the house of the Lord? We must be constantly challenging ourselves to ensure that we are making God's word central, the foundation of all that we do and say in his house. But you know, it's not just <clears throat> the pastors and the elders who are responsible for safeguarding God's word. It's all of you as well. It's all God's people's responsibility to ensure that God's word is preserved. And that means making it central in, in your lives. When you sit at home with the family, having that quiet time, when you're speaking to one another, we must make it central, we must preserve it, we must pass it on, we must focus on it so that we can protect and preserve it. And so, the word of God, which was lost, was rediscovered, and it was read, it was read before the king, and it impacted the king. I wonder how the word of God impacts us when it's read. How, how do we react to hearing God's word read? Do we even read it? Is it only on Fridays when we come to church that we hear God's word, that we read God's word? 
The people of God must be marked by the word of God. We must let it shape us, transform us. We must be a people of the word. Because there are many churches, brothers and sisters, who do not focus on God's word. They may take some nice bits of it, parts that you know, seem nice and, uh, and, and joyful, and forget the, the challenging parts which com- convict us. They keep the parts which encourage us, but the parts which convict us to lead lives pleasing to God are, are not even spoken of. You may get to other churches where the word of God is not even opened, and they just talk about social issues and, and self-help and how I could be a better me. Pray to God that ECC will not become that kind of church. And in order to avoid that problem, we must constantly prioritize reading God's word in the life of the church. And I don't just mean from the pulpit. All of us must be involved in opening God's word and sharing it together. Look at what Colossians says in chapter 3 and verse 16. It tells us that we must let the word of Christ dwell in you richly teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart to God. Now that expression, in you, it's, it's not primarily talking about the individual. You know, we may have looked at that verse and thought, this is just in me, God's word in me. But that's not primarily what the writer is getting at. He means in, in you, the church, right? And that's why there's that communication of teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. It's a community event. It's not an isolation event. It's a community event. And that's how the church of God gets built up in its most most holy faith. When the word of God is intrinsic to the life of the church, where it's predominant, it's primary, in all that we do and say to each other. And so, God's word is a way of encountering God together as his community, as his people. And it's no wonder why, you know, at times we are reluctant to go to it, because sometimes we just don't want to encounter God. If there is sin in the life, we don't want to encounter God. We don't want to be convicted. We don't want to be exposed. But we must get back to it. We must get back to God's word and not let anything prevent us from encountering God. But not only must we read God's word, we must also obey it. It's one thing to read it, and that's important. That's critical for the life of the church. But it's more critical to obey it, to obey what we read. Look at verse 13. Because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book, to do according to all that is written concerning us. And so we see that there was a nation who had not obeyed, who had not obeyed the word of, the God, of God, the word of the Lord. And because they had not obeyed, they had fallen so far from him. And because they had not obeyed, there was ripe judgment coming upon them because they had forsaken him the God who redeemed them. And so we also are in danger of disobeying God's word, are we not? Are we not so fickle? Are we not in that dangerous place always of disobeying God's 
word, our sinful internal desires work hard against us obeying God's word. We love to read it, but it's sometimes so hard just to obey it. We call him master and Lord, and yet we do not do the things which he commands us to do. It's so easy not to obey, to be complacent, but the word of God must not only be read, it must be obeyed. And even as a church, as ECC, we must obey God's word in our faith and practice, in how we function as a church. We must obey God's word to the letter so that we reflect what he wants us to be. As we look out there, there are many churches who don't obey God's word. We don't want to be like that. We want to obey his word and bring glory to his name because Jesus said, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. And so as God's church, as ECC, brothers and sisters in Christ, we must show our submission to God by obeying what he tells us, what he commands us in his word. And that shows us that we acknowledge him and that we serve him and that we are, therefore, a people of the book. And it further shows us that we love him, right? If we obey what God says, it shows us that that we love him. Listen to what John 5 verse 3 says. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. Do you love God? Do you love the Lord Jesus Christ, who shed his precious blood on the cross for our sins? You may say it by uh, speaking verbally, But do your actions show it? Do your actions show that you love God? Do you obey God's word? The 137-mile-long Atchafalaya River is a a distributary of the Mississippi River. River. And and this river, it meanders through south-central Louisiana in the United States, and um, it empties into the the Gulf of Mexico. And and this river, the Atchafalaya River, it provides sustenance and a strong economy to the people um, through whom it passes through. But yet, as a scenic, uh, productive, and enriching river as, as this is, it owes all of its strength. It owes all of its strength, all of it, to the mighty Mississippi River. And that's because this Atchafalaya River is just a distributary. It, it doesn't have a, a source of water, uh, as it were, uh, by itself. It doesn't have a direct water source, but it's essentially an overflow of the Mississippi River, so that when the Mississippi River is high, the Atchafalaya River is high. And when the Mississippi River is low, the Atchafalaya River is, is low as well. And so it's completely dependent upon the Mississippi River And so the church is just like that. We are also dependent on something outside ourselves. And if we lose our connection to that, which we are dependent on, we will just dry up and be empty. And that thing that we are connected to is the word of God. It's the word of God that sustains us, that gives life to us, that refreshes us. And if we lose our connection with our first love, the living word, We lose all power, 
we are dried up and we are empty, and so we must prioritize God's word. And one way to do this is simple. It's just to prepare our hearts. You know, as we come uh, to service, to worship service on Fridays, we can just prepare our hearts. We can pray and we can ask God to open our hearts so that we might not only hear his word, that really deep in our hearts, but that we might be willing to, to do his word. You know, we often assume that preaching is a one-way street. You know, as preachers, we, we labor in, you know, in, in the study of God's word, and, and as we do that, God's word, it speaks to us. Uh, it, it molds us and it shapes us, it convicts us, it challenges us. But it's not a one-way street. When we preach God's word, we expect that God's word will speak to you and that there will be a reaction in you, in your heart, a real reaction. A reaction that when you leave this place, you will go and apply those truths which have been taught into your lives. But you know, it's really hard when the congregation gives like, little response and, and it's sullen and doesn't really take God's word seriously. And, and, and that's hard. And, and if we have become like that, the first thing we must do is repent and seek God and ask him to open our hearts and ready our hearts so that we might accept his word, whether it's for exhortation, whether it's to convict us, to reprove us, whatever it may be, our hearts may be ready to receive it. And as we do so, we will not be tempted to neglect God's word, but we will be open to receiving his instruction and bringing that word to others in our community. And so, we see that we need to read God's word and that we need to obey God's word. But as I've noted, we don't always obey it. Uh, look at verses 13 and 16 to 17. And, and here we have a, a solemn account. Uh, Go inquire of the Lord for me and for the people and for all Judah concerning the words of this book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us, because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book, to do according to all that is written concerning us. And verse 16, thus says the Lord, behold, I will bring disaster upon this place and upon its inhabitants, all the words of the book that the king of Judah has read, because they have forsaken me and have made offerings to other gods that they might provoke me to anger with all the work of their hands. Therefore, my wrath will be kindled against this place and it will not be quenched. The church of God that disobeys and neglects God's word is in danger of divine punishment. It's in danger of divine punishment now, when you look at the book of Revelation in the first few chapters, we see that when church after church uh, in those few, first few chapters are rebuked and, and are promised judgment. But you know, what's important when we hear words like this, it's how we respond to them. When we open God's word and we find that there is judgment because we haven't been living in the light of God's truth, how we respond as a church, as a people of God, it's critical. And Josiah, he responds how? He responds by tearing his clothes. He responds 
in repentance. He, he didn't understand the full extent of the evil that had been occurring in the kingdom until he came to God's word and it was revealed to him. And as soon as he saw it, he tore his clothes in repentance for there was great wrath, there was coming disaster, and God's wrath was unquenchable. And so immediately he knew the weight and he repented. He was grieved. Do we grieve when we understand that we do not obey God's word, when we do not follow all that he has said, when we are in sin as a people and as a church? Do we grieve? Do we tear our clothes? Do we repent? Or do we respond in a way that's defensive, in a way that just chooses to ignore it and we just become complacent? Verse 11, when the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. That must be our reaction to sin and to disobedience because God's word must speak to us and form us. And look at that response that he receives. It shows that he has a tender heart for he had humility before God. And so repentance is crucial in the life of the church. As we read God's word, hear it, seek to live it, we must be in this constant state of repentance and renewal as God works in us as a church to conform us more and more to the image of his beloved son. The nation had been full of idols. They had sinned, and he repents of that. But perhaps there are idols in our hearts that we need to repent of. Perhaps an idol has been the comfort that this pandemic has brought us, where we have just had the opportunity to sit at home and listen to, to God's word without coming to God's church. We have neglected it. Perhaps the safety of that has become an idol in our hearts. If so, we need to confess. Unfortunately, and nonetheless, Isaiah's, uh, uh, Josiah's efforts uh, of repentance, it really was uh, uh, too little, too late. And we, f- we see that in verse 20. Therefore, behold, I will gather you to your fathers, and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace, and your eyes shall not see all the disaster that I will bring upon this place. And so regardless of his repentance, it was too little and too late. But praise God that we have a greater king, the king of kings and lord of lords, Jesus Christ, who has been able to resolve the problem of wrath against sin that we had. For he himself came down and bore that wrath upon himself so that all who believe in him will not have to do so. And just as God revealed himself to Josiah through his word, so Christ revealed himself to us in his incarnation. In these last days, Hebrews tells us, he has spoken to us by his son who became incarnate, the word of God. And how have we responded to this revelation of Christ, the word of God? Have we accepted him? Have we trusted in him, the only one who is able to deal with the wrath of God and the problem of sin? Have we believed in him? And if we have believed in him, are we living lives that acknowledge him as the king of our lives? Two years after their 
doctors in Salt Lake City revived this two-and-a-half-year-old Michelle. Uh, the, the news report tells us that she was bright and perky and, and living a normal life. And such can be us as God's church if we continue to focus on his word, to prioritize it, to prioritize God's word. We can also expect to live a, a life that is, as it were, perky, uh, as it were, is vibrant and proclaims his truth and brings glory to his name. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, we are just so thankful for your truth, the word of God. We thank you for the access that we have to the word of God. How privileged we are in this day and age to, uh, to have access of your word in paper format, in digital format. What a great and a true blessing it is. And we pray that even so, we may not neglect it, but that we may seek to prioritize your word, to read it, to hear it, to apply it, to obey it, to speak to each other in Scripture, to encourage one another with the Word of God, that we as your church might be built up in our most holy faith, that we as your church may be known as the church of the book, and that by doing so, we may bring much glory and honor to your name. And so we just praise you and bless you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.